I got a quote for you. So I got two. You can choose. You can choose Theodore Roosevelt's Believe You Can and You're Halfway There. Right? So from a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, if you believe you can, you're halfway there. Right? So which, which side are you believing? Right, yeah. And the other one is Henry Ford's classic, uh, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. I think that's a good one. Yeah, you got to put a little emphasis on that end, right? Yeah. If you think you can, if you think you can't, you're right. The podcast topic today is Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. Depending on your level of self-awareness, like this could change your life, this book. That's that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. Because anybody who tunes into the podcast might be like, well, this is, well, what does this have to do with agile development or whatever? Like, well, it doesn't have anything to do with agile development, but. Not directly. Not, Indirect, indirectly, it definitely does. Right. But I would throw out, like, if you're a Scrum Master Agile coach or whatever, especially the whole chapter on coaching, you need what is in this book. So I can actually give you a direct hook into the Agile mindset. So the Agile mindset is all about inspect and adapt, right? So inspect and adapt, and then turn around and do a retrospective. Right, turn around and figure out how you're doing. Well, if you have a fixed mindset, you're probably not doing a retrospective on your own daily activities and what you've done, what you've accomplished, what, what's happening in your life. And I would say that there's many times in my life that I've stopped to look and went, this is happening for these reasons. I, I do it every day. I look back at my day and what happened, what went well. I fell a lot just about every day, but I turn around and try to, and try to make it better by that inspect and adapt. And so I would say that from an agile standpoint, growth mindset is all about inspect and adapt. Right. I think we should mention for the 600,000 people that are out there watching this that this is our 100th episode. Oh, the, oh I completely forgot to mention. <laughs> yeah. Episode 100. We did it. We did. I can't think of a better topic on episode 100 than to start with the tagline of believing your qualities are carved in stone. The fixed mindset creates an urgency to prove yourself over and over. This is like the, the direct opposite of what you just said, Ed, about the, like the, the agile mindset of, hey, we'll try something. If that doesn't work, then we'll change. We'll do something else. This is the complete opposite of that. I have mm -hmm. to prove myself over and over. She says people are trained in this mindset from an early age. Anytime she talks about childhood development or how, how people interact with their teachers and how people gain this mindset through just the experiences in school, that part of the book is very tough for me. Because I'm like, oh, you're describing my education right now. My Florida education right now. Yep. I couldn't read when I got graduated high school. There was actually a video I saw at like 44 years old of my graduation party. And I've always remembered not being able to read clearly my graduation cards. Hmm. And the video showed me trying to read. And the way I've always felt for the last 30, for those 30 years mm -hmm. was exactly how I looked on that video. Yeah. So now I overcompensate and have, what, 150 books behind me in my, in my office. So uh, I fixed that problem. I want to be like, that's terrible. But uh, like, well, I'm not saying it's that's reality. terrible. Like, no, it's reality. It's terrible that you held on to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like, I, I understand it's, it's driven you. So you mm -hmm. can make an argument like, well, if it yeah. wasn't for that, then it w I wouldn't be driven to do whatever. Correct. I understand that. Is there a way that you still could have got the same outcome, but not had to put somebody through all that? You know what I mean? Like uh, the, the system that oh. shaped you. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, this is a leadership topic. Because the leadership of the company that sets the culture and the tone of the company, which we've talked about in many, yeah, many podcasts. Sure. Like if you understand this at a leadership level, you can do a lot. The growth mindset is based on the belief that your basic qualities are things you can cultivate through your efforts, your strategies, and help from others. Although people may differ in every way in their initial talents and aptitudes, interests and temperaments, everyone can change and grow through application and experience. Like, so on that, that's interesting there, right? Because you know, say the belief that basic qualities are things you can cultivate, and that's mm -hmm. growth mindset. Growth mindset says you can cultivate your basic qualities. Yeah. But I also tell you that I have some intrinsic values that you can look at my review from 1997 that the Sergeant Kipper gave me, and you can look at the review I got last year. And there's some of those qualities that no matter how hard I try are still there. And they're like, you can't, you do this, you do that. And I'm like, yeah, I keep, I, right. So it is interesting that I've learned from my mindset. I've accepted that there's some qualities 
that they're just part of me. They're just, they're so ingrained. They've been there forever that you just have to accept them, figure out how to put compensating controls around them, and then explain yourself at times, right? Every now and then when you start working with somebody new, you're like, hey, I might do this, and when I do, please, let's have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. So first, I think the first step is to recognize that you have those, right? Yep. You know, instead everybody of, does. Everybody does, absolutely, but not everybody accepts that they have them. So if you accept they, that you have them and then decide to do something about it by showing that vulnerability and saying, look, please call me out on this. If I do this, I don't mean to, right? It's habit. Habits are ingrained over a considerable period of time in our lives, and they're hard to shake off. So from chapter one, talents, aptitudes, interests, and temperatures can change through application and experience, right? And how many times do we hear, so, oh, you're flip-flop on that. Three weeks ago, you said this. Yeah. Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about that in the last three weeks, actually. Yep. And I realized that when we got in, in, we engaged in a conversation about it, I actually listened to what you had to say. I spent some time thinking about it. And I didn't come back and check with you. But yeah, I, you educated me. I changed my mind. I believe something differently today. Yeah. And But then there's this thought process that you can't change your mind. You can't flip-flop on something. Once you say it, you're convicted forever. And that's, that's interesting. So for me, yeah, you definitely have to be able to change through application and experiences. It's funny Agreed, because it, the fixed mindset counterpoint to that one is going to be like, you're just flip, you're flip-flopping, you're wishy-washy. You're yeah. like, what What are you, you changing your mind all the time? You're undecided. Yeah, you're yeah, undecided. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's going to be the, like, I can I can hear it in my head. And as a, bringing this profile as a, as a high D or fire-ready aim. And so, yeah, there's <laughs> lots of times we do things that, other people may be aiming on, thinking yeah. about, getting ready for, and I'm just trying to make a decision because I need to move forward. Uh, I might not be going in a straight line, but I'm moving forward. I'm not, I'm not standing still waiting for something to happen. Fixed mindset. It's not enough to just succeed. It's not enough to just look smart and talented. You have to be pretty much flawless, and you have to be flawless right away. I'm going to read quite a few quotes and call it out again to say, just to remind people watching or listening, the reason I bring this up is... Like now you're a better scrum master, agile coach. You can call out these traits and be like, oh, I have this one for manager, supervisor, whatever you want to call it in the company. And they are resisting this, oh, this, this whole like fail fast type of trope that you will hear. I'll call it a trope. That's right. I did that. Because like in some companies, they'll say, wow, fail fast. But then like oh, none of their mechanisms are built for that. And they say fail fast, but you actually, you better not fail because that means mm-hmm. uh-huh, that's yeah. not going to be a bonus there. And then you're going to look at you at the end of the year and say, ooh, oh, I don't know. Like you didn't do this the right the first time and took you two, three times to figure it out. Like. Like that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about your future with this company. What about what about the failure is not an option, right? That's failure right. is not an option. Well, that was great when we were ta- when it was quoted as part of Apollo thirteen, and we were trying to get people back to Earth who were floating in space and lives were on the line. Um, if Susie doesn't get addressed next week because the e-commerce store couldn't handle the payload, that may or may not be as failure not an option scenario. So uh, sometimes people use quotes out of context for me, and I was kind of like, I actually know what that context is, and I don't have the same context. Context is king. Absolutely. <laughs> I fully agree. Context is king. And a lot of people who are thinking about it from the other perspective will use that to their advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say, absolutely, failure is not an option, right? Susie has to get her dress. Yeah. Maybe it's a wedding dress and she's getting married. I don't yep. know. There's no, we're not, this isn't heart surgery or anything, right? But people will definitely use, use it to their advantage. Yeah, I had a leader once contact us. If it if it happens to one person, that's one person too many. We can't we can't allow that. So back yeah. to that perfection mindset. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes we put that perfection in, a, in an expectation, and we push that out. I get that it's a goal. I get that it's a need. I get that it's an ideal scenario, but 
there's also a reality component of that that we're just not mature enough to do that yet. Yeah, I mean, often it's not even a goal, I would say. Often it's just an aspiration, right? right. This is what we would love. We would love to get 70% market share by Q3 this year. Right. Right. You're not geared up for that. You know, your fulfillment process isn't there to, to deliver to that. So, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. A lot of times you'll see those kinds of statements in, in financial declarations or statements that companies make, right? right? And then they'll just hide behind the fact that they they might fail by saying this is a forward-looking statement. So there's no guarantees, basically, right? We were talking about teachers earlier, and on page 28, she's talking about an example where they, they put out a, I think they put out a study, or they put, out a, a, test. They put out a letter, or it was a test, I don't I remember what it was, was basically, basically, they were trying to identify the difference between the growth mindset teachers and the fixed mindset teachers, whatever. And it says teachers with a fixed mindset were more than happy to answer the questions in the survey mm-hmm. about students, and then they, have, they got an angry letter where remove me from the survey yeah where the person says you you cannot determine the slope of a line given only one point so basically the student's test is only one moment in time or one one captured data point in time you can't determine the slope of a line given in one point there's no line to begin with single point in time does not show trend improvement lack of effort mathematical ability etc and then the idea that one evaluation can measure you forever is what creates the urgency for those with a fixed mindset that's why they must succeed perfectly and immediately Every example is like worse than the last. Day. You know what's funny is that people like people will listen. To, people with a fixed mindset will listen to this and be like, "Well, yeah, of course I agree with that. Yeah, of course, right, of right. course common sense. Yeah, it makes total sense." Chuck Yeager, the hero of the right stuff, begged to differ. There is no such thing as a natural born pilot. Whatever my aptitude or talent, becoming proficient pilot was hard work, really a lifetime's learning experience. The best pilots fly more than others. That's why they're the best. So I watch movies for leadership lessons. You see the you see last Top Gun, right? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming both of you have already seen that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So the mission was impossible. Not making a Tom <laughs> not making a, a pun there, but the mission was, <laughs> that was impossible. A good pun. Yeah. The mission was, was impossible until Maverick proved it could be done. Right. And so sometimes when you're leading a, a group of folks or you know, you're trying to inspire or grow them, that thing that's impossible for them becomes a fixed mindset. Oh, I can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. Mm-hmm. Until you see someone do it, right? The four minute mile was unbreakable until somebody broke it. It's taking that time and figuring out how to inspire through example takes a growth-minded person. We talk about the growth mindset and the fixed mindset, mm-hmm. two sides, right? There might be a continuum there. Oh, there so, so it's not just fully growth or fully, right? There's like in between. And a lot of, a lot of times people that are growing in their journey go, go down that path, right? So if you're, if you're not set at station A, you're not quite there at station B, you're somewhere in between as long as you're heading toward B. What does that mean to people who listen to this podcast and if they haven't read the book? Like, what message do we have? Luckily, you don't have to guess because she, she says it on page 46 and 47 where she answers the question, can I be half and half and recognize both mindsets in myself? She says people can have different mindsets in different areas. I recognize that I might think that artistic skills are fixed, but my intelligence can be developed. Later in the book, she also talks about, like, if I know that I can't draw, I realize, like, my logical brain realizes I can take the time you know, watch some videos, learn how to draw. And she, she there, there's even a, a part in the book where people go through a drawing class and they come out in one day being able to do like self, they, they do a self portrait before the class, like at the very start of class and like the class, like six hours, something like that. And then at the end of the class, they draw a self portrait and she puts them all in the book of what they look like before and after. And they're pr- pretty stark yeah. contrast before yeah. and after. But the, the point is you, you may know, she even says it on the previous page, people tell me they start to catch themselves when they're in the throes of the fixed mindset, passing up a chance for learning, feeling labeled by a failure or getting discouraged when something requires a lot of effort. And then they switch 
into the growth mindset. This is exactly that example of like, oh, I know I can't draw. I'm not even going to try because I'm. Right. It might be a crappy drawing, like a. But but uh, like drawing is like a like n- nobody nobody feels offended in that example, right? I I but I could apply that to a lot of different of things course. where people would get all woo r- ruffled and feathers <laughs> all over the place. Yep. But I would say if you realize that hey, this is something that would take a lot of effort. And I'm just I'm just not willing to exert the effort. That that's a little bit different. Then, uh, like again, the like the Lee Iacocca examples and stuff that she's going to use later, right. where he's just bent out of shape and obviously destroying his company. Everyone knows it, but nobody wants to make him angry or whatever because he's affecting everyone around him with his crappy mindset. I've always I wondered by about the Iacocca example, um, right? Because he was at Ford and left Ford and go to, to go to Chrysler, Chrysler, yeah, right. So he had that in him where he was a competitor and I'm smarter than everyone else. And so I actually question whether his growth mindset was real or not. I don't I don't know. I wasn't there, don't know for sure. But was he brilliant in what he was doing? Yeah, he was. He had some brilliance to him, but he, he also made some other bets that weren't so great. But yeah, the idea that you can go from you have and flow, I think is a season of your life. If you get rocked in life and something happens that takes you off your track. The example earlier was in one of the one of the sections, I think it's chapter three or four, but you know something happens to the industry within your small town, that industry goes away, your small town's now suffering. Some things are gonna happen that are outside of your control and failure happened. It's how you respond to it. Exactly, yes, it's how you respond to it. So just accept the fact that failure's gonna happen. And once you accept that, your mindset should be, well, what will we do? What do we do, right? We can't prevent failure from happening, like nature takes its course, but Mm -hmm. what can we do? Come up with some strategies, maybe even test some things out ahead of time so you're better prepared. Her whole chapter on mindset and leadership, business mindset and leadership, like that is a super interesting chapter to me. And since he went toward Lee Iacocca, I'm just cutting straight, cutting like a hundred pages in the book. I think around that same point, one thing she says is never stop trying to be qualified for the job, right? So from a growth mindset standpoint, never stop trying to be qualified for the job. Mm -hmm. Every day you go to work, every day you're trying to accomplish something. What are your qualifications and are you still qualified? Because the requirements continue to move for the job, right? A software developer who was developing software in 2010 doing the same thing today mm-hmm. likely has a smaller market share than yeah. if they yeah. continue to grow and learn, right? Oh, there's still COBOL developers. Yeah, there are, but there's not as many and, and the market share is not as large. Yeah. So it's still a skill set that you can make some money at and probably make some great money at. It's just, there are not many opportunities for you. So you have to maintain your qualifications and that takes growth, that takes effort to, to actually accomplish. I've done a lot of self-analysis over my years, trying to figure out what drives me, what's my intrinsic values, what's the source of it, what happened. Mm-hmm. I grew up a bowler and I started bowling when I was five. I'm bowling on a league with my wife right now. It's our, it's our date night and it's not a competitive league. It's, a fun, it's meant to be a fun league. But one of the things I've learned, it took, and this was probably 10 years ago, it took me that long to figure it out, is my desire to bowl a perfect game and all the little things that I have to do as a bowler to bowl a perfect game, I have bowled a perfect game, but that desire for perfection as a sport impacted how I did my job. Yep. Because I was, all those little micro adjustments I have to make as a bowler, as the lanes change, as things happen, as you just make those little micro adjustments. When you're used to doing that all the time and you're in a business scenario and you're trying to same, make those same micro adjustments and no one really understands what you see, why you see it, what the effects are, they get a little turned off by it. They don't understand it. So it took me a long time to figure that out, to understand that that drive for perfection at an early age, and oh, I want 300, one 300, one 300. Then I got my 300, and it's like, all right, I'm back to proof. Yeah. Proved I could do it. Really affected my way of working as well. You're taking us straight to the next chapter, because if you go to bowl and you end up bowling the perfect game, now, now the stress is on, because every frame after that you bowl, now you're super stressed, because you, you already proved that you can do it once perfectly. So now every time you don't do it perfectly after that, yep. now, now the, the, the pressure's just crushing, until the point where you're just like, I don't, you, you don't enjoy it anymore. 
Right. And you don't want to do it because it's you're not going to be perfect every time anymore. And that's with any sport, right? But as any sport, sure. there's yeah. some there's some number, some metric, right? What's your handicap as a golfer? What's your average as a bowler? What's your time as a runner? There's some metric that when you answer the question, the person's sizing you up. Mm. I'm better than you. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could run that fast. Pivot back to business world right quick. A large company that I am not naming. They would bring people that were successful on one program over to the program that I was on, hoping that they'd be the new leadership person to knock it out of the park or whatever. And then that person would just be completely crushed when they were not immediately successful at day one. They haven't fixed all the problems. And then whatever, six weeks in, they're the management or whatever, leadership, I guess you can call them leadership if you want. They've lumped that new leader onto the trash heap with the rest of us. But the other thing is that that new leader really didn't step up. They, they were also completely crushed by not being immediately successful as soon as they walked in because they were successful in some other software project. And, and me the whole time sitting there going, that software project was completely different, completely different tech stack, completely different team members. Everything was completely different. So what, what made you even think that you, because you happen to be successful, happen to be successful? We're not even injecting into this story whether that person really was successful or whether the people under him just been like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, let's, well, let's assume they were. Sorry, so let's, uh, yeah. let's, take, the, let's yeah. take the optimist approach. Let's assume they were, right? And continue to use a sports analogy because they work easy. That leader may have been a seven iron on a par three. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you t- took them to a par five and all they still have is their seven iron. Right. And so they weren't equipped for the scenario, for the environment, for the... The, yeah. the, the course they found themselves on. Yeah. They didn't have the same team. They didn't have the same support. Yeah. And and the things that they knew didn't apply in this new scenario. Right. And that's where changing companies, changing experience, spending time retrospecting on why, why that worked and why that didn't work, what was good about the process, what was not good about the process, what local optimizations you had to make it work matter so that when you do get into your next role, you're not standing with a seven iron when you should have a driver. Or you're not swinging away with a seven iron or a sand pit. Oh, this works, I'm gonna make it. <laughs> and then another one she says later in that same chapter with kids saying that, oh, you mean I don't have to be dumb? Basically the, the, the kids started handing in assignments, handing in assignments early to get feedback to revise the assignment so they could turn it in again before the due date. Mm-hmm. The idea is you can you could iterate on your assignment many times right. before it's finally due. Which, which to me, I, like I read this and I'm, what, what school system was this? Because that, that was not my school system. I, I did not go to school under this. I mean, it makes total sense knowing what I know now and the way that I work, like in professional life. I, I didn't go to school. Like You got one shot. Right. And that was it. Yeah, what you turned in was what you turned in. Deadlines were tight. There was so much homework, it was hard to work ahead. So it was good preparation for corporate life. Yeah, exactly. For a ter- certain type of corporate life, oh, I would yeah. agree. Failure equals identity or uh, activity. When you fail, is it your, is it your identity? Yeah. You're a failure? Or was it an activity I failed? And it, some of this comes from upbringing. So she outlines on page 72, like where you're going, I think is absolutely correct. She says, uh, it's based off of what your parent is, well, it could, it's your parent, but I mean, in the business context, it could be anyone, based off of what they're praising. Mm-hmm. It says, right after the, right after the praise, the, they began to differ. She's talking about praising kids. As we feared, the ability praise pushed students right into their fixed mindset and showed all the signs of it too. We gave them a choice. They rejected a challenging new task they could learn from. They didn't want to do anything that could expose their flaws and call into question their talent. This is after they're praised for, you're so smart. Yeah, basically praised on on something that's not not, not easily changeable. Yeah. yeah. Rather than praise on the effort that it took to get there. So basically not the activity, praising them on the ability, not the activity. Is that what you said? Am I right on that? I think so. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you. It does come down to what praise you received. Yeah. And I think it's a large population, not 50%, when I say large, not majority, but 
more than 10%, so let's call it 20%. I think 15 to 20% of our population were raised with negative praise. Absolutely. And so if there's that much of a population that was raised with negative... I think it's a lot more than that. So we agree. All right, so I, I was trying to be... A lot more. All right, so then let's call it 40. So 40% of the population was raised with negative praise. When you look at who's on your team, 40% of them were probably raised with negative praise and you're trying to work with them, you're trying to encourage them, you're trying to coach them, which is counter to what they're used to, so they're uncomfortable with it, and then you're saying fail, and they don't wanna fail. There's a, something I was taught many years ago about going above the line and below the line. The line is the space that you can see is above the line, the space you can't see is below the line. When you start at the top, the results come from activities. Those are the things you see, results and activities. Mm-hmm. Activities come from behaviors. You don't, you don't really, um, you don't, really, you don't really know why they behave the way they do. Yeah. And then those behaviors came from experiences. The experiences are the deep part of that. If you don't build the relationships with your team where you can understand their experiences to understand why they behave the way they do, why they act the way they act, right. to then create the results they create, you don't really ever get to understand it. So you have to be able to go below the line with them, just not stay there. And so that was a, that was a lesson I was taught, something I've never forgotten, and something I try to do as frequently as I can with myself, why, why did I do that? Why, why did I behave that way? What was, what was the experience I had before mm-hmm. that created that response? And then from there, how do I change it so that I have better activity, better results in the future? And that's part of that growth mindset that if you want to grow, figure out what your experiences were that are causing you to behave in the way you're behaving if you want different actions and results. Also, like I'll, I'll cut you all the way to chapter seven because she's talking about how Parents, teachers, and coaches, where mindsets come from. That's the chapter title, right? And in there, she says, it can be a fixed mindset message that says, you have permanent traits, and I'm judging you on them. It can be a growth mindset message that says, you're a developing person, and I'm committed to your development. Right? Like, how do you do this in professional atmosphere? Well, you do it with one-on-ones. In fact, I would argue this is that like, one-on-ones is the only venue that you're gonna have an opportunity to, to have an, an intimate enough conversation with a person to get them to reveal any of these, like, what was your education like? What were your parents like? What, you know what I mean? You can't ask that question, because like, what is this, a psychology, like our counseling session? Like, lay down on the couch, Ed. We, we still talk about your childhood. Like, what? I'm sorry, like, my bad. <laughs> we must have went to the same psychiatrist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> raising children's intelligence harms their motivation and harms their performance, which is a, a declaration on page 178, which is hidden in the in the middle of the whole page, right? Praising children's intelligence harms their motivation and it harms their performance. Uh, and then on the next page, she's talking about a student, by the way, reflecting. This was my greatest learning disability, the tendency to see performance as a reflection of character and if I could not accomplish something right away to avoid the task, to treat it with contempt. So, so basically pe- people are fleeing trying to do hard things basically that's that's what this is the shocking thing about this book is that like all leaders have not read this book because she she cuts right to uh, on page 184 there's a strong message in our society about how to boost children's Mm self-esteem and the main part of that message is protect them from failure Mm -hmm. right in the next page she says i met with coaches and they asked me what happened to the coachable athletes where did they go they seem to want coaches who will simply tell them how talented they are and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Which again, like if we're talking about anything that's completely transferable, like I think of an agile coach, agile coach, scrum masters, I could take this page, lift it out, drop it into any LinkedIn thread and, and say, where have all the coachable leadership, agile leadership gone? Mm-hmm. Everyone seems that I just want to hire me as a scrum master and I just want to tell them how talented they are as leaders and project managers and whatever. And they don't want me to actually like coach up in the organization. And then 
the fire hole division or whatever. Right, <laughs> oh, right. no, that's an upcoming podcast. Yeah, hey. yeah they're all gone. <laughs> so let's talk about coaching just for a moment because there's a key point there is there's a couple I'm trying not to say names. There was a video of a ex-football player mm -hmm. who was tough on a kid on the football team, and it made national news, clips all over the place, and a lot of the responses are, a coach shouldn't put their hands on the kid, blah, 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 blah. Well, the kid was being mouthy. The kid's on a football team, and he's wearing a bunch of pads. Oh, yeah. I mean, if he's, if, he's, if he's going to drive his body into another person on the field, a coach grabbing him by the pad and pushing him to the seat isn't really an injury, a harm, abuse on a child. He's being a football coach. So I struggle sometimes with the parent involvement. So where do the coachable kids go? The parents who are getting too involved with their kids' lives and making decisions for them, pushing them, the kids aren't, aren't getting their own experience. I am very happy that I grew up in a time where I could play with fire, I could blow a few things up, not hurt anybody, but I could learn what those things were. We have a generation today that is not learning a fundamental way that's going to make innovation happen. I think innovation is, is being impacted by remote work. There's so many things that happen just by being in the room with other people and seeing them do something mm -hmm. that you go, oh, I didn't, I didn't think I could do that. I didn't know you could do that. You just never see it on video. There were so many things we did as coaches in the room that made everyone better. Agile coaches now, not yeah. football coaches. Agile coaches yeah. in the room that made everyone better by experiencing it as a group that we just don't do in the remote sense. Yeah. I agree. like I I agree with that like yeah I'm a full transparency like I'm full time remote but but also I tell people all the time if we if we did more plannings in person and I had to travel I had no problem with that for example the time when you're kicking off sprints or when you're doing like roadmap syncs and stuff like that or vision canvases with leadership and stuff mm -hmm. like that I tell people all the time like that kind of stuff like that kind of stuff needs to be in person like I need to see your body language when I'm presenting like we could go down this road right. I need more input than what I'm getting over whatever Zoom or whatever terrible tool you use. That's all of them. Hopefully not I'm a Zoom. consultant, I use all of them. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I tell people all the time, if I'm doing um, user personas or or the, the lean canvas or whatever, mm -hmm. any, any of those tools, I would rather be in person for all that kind of stuff. You can do it all remote. You mm -hmm. can. It's not very effective it's though. Not, I, I, people it, don't admit it, but it's really not very I, effective. I mean, but the challenge is when everyone is remote and you're trying to fly 10 people in, versus one person going to where everyone else is. There's there's that aspect as well, right? You're Right now there's yeah. some teams, mine included here is, mm -hmm. I have the majority of my team remote that we need to go to client site. If we, tr if we chose to fly everyone in, you flew 10 people in at 800, 500 bucks a piece, sure. that adds up real quick when you sure, talk about yeah. travel budget Absolutely. that was in the right. agreement. Right, right. Especially in the current economic climate. Yeah, yep. right. yeah. Hey man, like don't maintain a corporate office. Like keep them keep their expenses down. <laughs> right, right. But innovation. But th this is a lagging indicator, right? This is innovation is something that we as a country, ten years from now, are going to go. Oh yeah, remote work. Right. It's not something that yeah. you're going to. You can't just decide it until you see it, and it it's just going to happen. So well, COVID kind of forced the hand a bit. They, they did. Yeah. It did. But now the mindset of I like to work remote. I'm a fixed-minded person. I don't care how good you your argument is for coming back into the office for some period of time, or so we can collaborate, or we've all gone, or we've all gone remote to where our headquarters is in some other city, and everyone is remote. It's hard to get everyone back into that city. So it's it's going to be it's, it's going to be interesting to watch yeah. how innovation is impacted yeah. overall as a country. As a we talk about gross domestic product, right? Yeah. What's in, what's innovation going to be? Just that example of of working remote and people. Initially, it started off with, I don't know how this is going to work. 
I've always worked in the office, right? Yeah. Right. I can't see people, especially some management. I won't call them leadership. <laughs> They're like, we don't know if our people are working. So right. now, you, now you've got to a point where those that want to work really work. They figured it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They figured out it isn't just about telecommunication. It's about telepresence, right? They figured all that stuff out. But you still got some people to your point that just say, well. I'd rather work from home. So it's the whiffamism again, right? right. The What's in it for me? Well, I don't want to get up early and, and commute, right? If that's what you want to get out of it, then that basically is going to shape how your attitude is going right. into it, right? As opposed to people are going in, why are they going in? Mm-hmm. What, what are they getting? Let me understand that. Maybe I should go in. Maybe I'll go in once and see how it goes. I'm seeing a lot of that now where some of the contract folks, especially, they've now been molded into this line of thinking where if you're not in the office, you're not working. So they show up. Mm-hmm. And then they jump on a bridge with one another. Right. And then they complain. They're like, I could have done this wrong. So you're missing the point here. You're just there sitting all day with your headset on. What about taking a break and, and talking to people that are there? Right? You mean you, talk to people. you can talk to people? You can actually, yeah, have a real life I'm, conversation, not just ping them over some kind of chat channel. When we all work together, I mean, think about how much we shared over lunch. Oh, goodness. Oh. How much did we learn from each other over lunch? Tremendous. Right? So I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to take a position on remote, hybrid, or in-office. I'm not trying to take a position. I'm taking a position on the impact of innovation yeah. and how, a, how I feel just the opinion of it's better for me to work from home is almost a fixed-minded mindset if you're only thinking about the benefits for you, not the growth mm-hmm. of the organization, your team, or whatever else. I'm yeah. just... I'm not trying to pick because yeah. I actually like working remote. I'm, so back yeah. to, I have the team. We have a team agreement that if you are speaking, you're on camera, right? You can go on and off camera based on what you're doing, uh, especially for lunch. If for lunch, I don't want to watch it too. But sound okay with that. But yeah. if you're speaking, yeah, yeah. it's there's so many nonverbals right. when you're speaking. I want to see you on camera because I need that extra visual mm-hmm. to understand how yeah. you're feeling today, what's going on with you, what might be happening. Do you yeah. look tense? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's Absolutely. so many. If we had so many lessons prior to COVID that said. Nonverbal communication is so important. It's ninety percent of communication. You need to watch what the it, and now we're like, go on camera, stay off camera. Yeah. What? You're, so is that? A, am I supposed to change my mind about the value of nonverbal communication now? I don't think so. I don't yeah. think so. I do want to go back to coaches real quick. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. All right, all right. I have one quote here from John Wooden. So for me, John Wooden is one of the it's greatest coaches ever. Good, right. Yes, yes, good uh, John Wooden's quote is: "You are not a failure until you start blaming others for your mistakes." Right. Yeah. Right. So back to that fixed mindset, growth mindset. When I talk about the retrospect as I do on a daily basis in my life and what happens. There are times someone else contributed to what happened. So that person becomes part of my story as to what happened. I accept 100% responsibility for the result. That was my, but I also at times have to look at this happened, this person responded this way, they're part of the story. But when you when you tell some, someone else the story, they can hear, oh, well, you're blaming them. Right. I'm not blame. I'm not trying to place blame on them. It's 100% my fault. It's all my fault. I get it. It's my responsibility. So it's it's interesting at times when you think about that quote and the when you do your retrospectives on your life, don't blame others, but do realize they still contribute. Yeah. Their mindsets, their belief system, back to that below the line, above the line. Right. They behaved and acted a certain way based on their experience that ultimately impacted you. Yeah, I, I think that's really powerful. So one of the things that I've been doing for a long, long time is, is journaling. And no matter how tired I am, I open my journal book and write down something about what happened during that day. Hmm. It helps me. It really does. And then when I go back, like usually on a Sunday afternoon or coffee, I go back and look at the whole week and, and see how the week went, basically, hmm. and trying to learn from that. 
I've been very cognizant of that fact that I wrote, I wrote down it's because of so and so that this X Y Z happened. Right, right. And I look at that and I end up scratching it out, going, hmm. they were just a party. It could have been anybody, right? right? It, look at the way I reacted, right. right? And then I circle that my reaction, right? And I circle out of the arrow, saying what it should have been, another, you know, maybe a square, right? And go, that's what I should have done. Now it's hindsight, granted, but just doing that over time has made me realize that people can influence you in your day-to-day negatively or positively but ultimately to your point you're accountable and responsible for your own actions mm-hmm. and sure. results that's what matters right? and i and, and i will always apologize i mean if someone's like hey you owe me an apology come talk to me i owe you an apology sure. i will give you an apology right. if you uh, feel that way then right. you're probably right right <laughs> maybe i did something i shouldn't have done. exactly i just want to get to the coach's mindset there right so yeah. coach Wood is read his stuff if you haven't read his stuff but that one was one that's always kind of stuck with me is yes it takes two people to have conflict you know the definition of conflict is two people in the same county right mm-hmm. Hatfield McCoy right they could they could never live together right it just <laughs> it goes back in history so you just you have that mindset where things happen to you they happen for whatever reason someone else contributed to the way you responded you responded based on your experiences your beliefs and the whole getting along thing is understanding that everyone has their faults things happen but when you do your retrospectives when you sit back and figure out why that happened understand that you don't want to blame them but they're part of the story when you're telling it to someone else and some people when you tell them that story are going to believe you're blaming them and you can't convince them otherwise we're talking about storytelling now that's a whole different book right uh, sorry podcast uh, although like constructing an appropriate story and then figuring out how to craft that story so that makes sense that that is a legitimate leadership skill that is important but that's not where you're going with this one. I, I feel where you're going with this one is don't make it out like you're the victim in this play. That that that's where I feel like that's right. where you're going. I'm going back to the book. Right. You're, you're, don't have a victim mentality. Right. Figure out what your parts are, and make sure you're learning from those experiences. Right. It's a teachable moment. Right. You know, yeah. to your to your journaling. If what's the purpose of journaling if you never look back and reflect on it? Right. Right. And even just sometimes getting it out of your head on a paper is therapeutic because you said it out loud. Right. Right, and it helps you see another perspective, maybe. Right, right. If you're thinking about it from that, you're you're you, and what you've got on the on paper. In my case, I'm old-fashioned. Is basically a scenario. So you're now looking at it from an external standpoint. Like, yep. That's me, but look at all the players around me. Right, that that views. You don't have that if you keep it up here. Right, and then it's very easy to do that. Jump into that snap decision. Well, I, I was victimized, or I couldn't have done anything. That, and and to go back to the book. It, it, I think I'm going back to chapter one. But when you go back to the book is when she asked, when I asked fixed-minded people what they thought about this, they they said to themselves this about right. failing, about the problem, right? They blame themselves. They mm-hmm. did this. They did that. And so it still goes to the book. The story I'm telling myself is, and right. you're playing this out. Is right. it true? Is it not? How does it impact you? You have to know how the stories are affecting you. And so a lot of, in the agile minds, a lot of agile writing, oh, do the five whys, five whys, five whys. The one thing I've always found about five whys is when I get to the fifth why, I'm blaming somebody. <laughs> Why'd that happen? Oh, uh, Brian didn't do his job, oh. right? Why'd that happen? Brian didn't know anything, uh, right? And so when you do the five whys, you end up with a, per- to me, you always end up with a person. I just, I, yeah. why'd that happen? It, someone didn't do this. So I, I like to do the five hows. I think five hows is more of a discipline it comes from, but the five hows, how did, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, it happened because of this. Right. It tends to take the person out of right. it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you could probably do that in every Y, couldn't you? You right. could say Y, and then how could that have been different? Right. And then the next Y, and how could that have been You right. just walk down your chain of command. Exactly. Why did yeah. that happen? CEO, CFO, IT leader, <laughs> yep. Scrum and Master. You always end up with, let me brush up my resume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, you probably could do that exercise by like working with our working agreement where you just don't name people's names and say, well, well finance needed whatever. And then you're kind of talking about entities in the organization. I don't know. Have you ever, so yep. you, you used to like to sell about retrospective, right? So I do it quarterly. It, okay. it, for me, from in my environments, I find that a sub sub retrospective quarterly. When I first take over a team, I want to do a sub retrospective because it kind of gives me some some ideas of what they're thinking on different aspects, mm-hmm. right? So, an, an initial retrospective and a sub retrospective when you take over the team. And when I say I do it quarterly, in three months when I do the sub retrospective again, and I know a little bit more about going on, and I go back to the first one to reflect, why didn't you guys tell me about that now? And you're, yeah. I, why did I have to yeah. wait to find yeah, out yeah. about it? it was, why didn't yeah. you put it on there then? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I like about the sub retrospective. Yeah is because right. you can learn a lot early yeah. and get a collective agreement of what's going on. But if you go back to the original, so I'm not sure why I'm getting here, but if you go back to the original <laughs> sailboat retrospective. Well, welcome to the podcast. You're in the right, right place. <laughs> there used to be pirates on the original sailboat retrospective. Oh, no, really? I still have them on mine. I had no I idea. I have pirates and I have a the new island. The new model no longer has pirates. If you, for about the last five years, you couldn't do pirates. I, and the I, reason is... I want to lodge a complaint. I've never seen pirates on my retrospective yeah, at all. I, and the reason you don't have pirates is because you end up blaming somebody. The pirates the are the people. Yeah. They're the bad guys. I had no idea that yeah. pirates. The I like, sanitized I want. I want. Uh, I want Johnny Depp pirates on my like. Yeah, exactly. Or, I, or Amber Heard pirates. I, I took over a team. I think it was 2016, yeah. 2017, and I did this <laughs> retrospective. And I'm gonna change the name to save the innocent. The pirate was from everybody. Susie, 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 oh, no. Susie, Susie, oh, no. Susie. And I'm like, okay. So tell me about this Susie thing. <laughs> But yeah, so thank yeah. you for keeping pirates alive. But no, it's not in the it's not in it's the prescript it's not yeah, in the prescriptive yeah. model anymore. So I, I moved on to theme based retros. Now I do you know, Game of Game of Thrones based okay. retros and stuff like that, just just to get people into it. There are quite a few like the, the Chris Stone, like he puts yeah. up all those retros that he puts up there. There are quite a few good ones yeah. that he's put I've up used, there. I've uh, used a lot of his, templates. Honestly. Yeah, and, and he he shares a whole template. So yeah, like yeah. it's like you don't really have to do a lot of work to go, even if you're doing the job part time playing the role but he puts all the assets out there for you so you don't need to recreate anything you just go right. steal them and or uh, borrow them you guys ready to jump to a contentious point in the oh, book yeah, oh there's it. no such thing go ahead oh yes there is like here I don't we go i don't believe it i'm all right well it'll, be, it'll only be contentious if we disagreed uh well okay i'll try to disagree <laughs> I, don't know if I, agree with that. <laughs> I feel i feel like when when stormy is back we'll we'll i'll read her this section and then like pages 78 and 79 and then we'll have a whole podcast just on this topic i'll tell you what i, I think i'd like to do a podcast with the four of us after that last uh, oh yeah uh, what i what i appreciate about stormy's perspective is she didn't grow up as a technologist yeah, you're right yeah right when, right. when people say, when I tell people, hey, I was in the Air Force, well, what'd you do in the Air Force? Yeah. I was a computer programmer, <laughs> right? So I grew up in technology, yeah. even in the Air Force. Right, yeah, yeah. So I don't know much more right, than yeah, yeah. this career field. Yeah. And so when she brings her medical background mm-hmm. and she brings it from a collaborative, the customer might be dying mindset, I really enjoy that. So right. I, I, I truly enjoy Stormy as a host. Yeah. Oh, it's so we found our audience. I, like, I'm podcasts. the one guy, right? When I, you talk about the one guy, I'm the, I have the YouTube going above my desk while I'm working. <laughs> I'm telling you. The only thing about a four-person podcast is we have to have a pretty stringently moderated discussion. Yeah, four, four people is a it's hard. To, it's hard to keep wreck. the flow. Is a train wreck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's the part that I wanted to get into. Where, oh, we could have a whole podcast with Stormy on this one. All right, I'm reading what she says. This is not my words. Page 78. I swear to you, this is not my language. It's her language. Many females have problems not only with stereotypes but with other people's opinions of them in general. They trust too much. 
is a period of the innocence. Hang on, I'm, I'll qualify it. Hang on, yeah, yeah. hang on. D- don't don't dig into it yet because nope. I got more. When they're little, these girls are often so perfect and they delight in everyone telling them so. Either you're so well-behaved, you're so cute, you're so helpful, and they're so precocious. Girls learn to trust people's estimates of them. Boys, she's contrasting, boys are constantly being scolded and punished. When we observed in grade school classrooms, we saw that boys got eight times more criticism than girls for their conduct. I grew I'm, up in that school. I'm, I'm cutting you forward. Yeah. The right. point of her bringing this section up is to say that someone said to her in passing, oh, you drip some food on your shirt or whatever, you're such a slob. And then she says, I realize that no one has ever said anything like that to me. She's implying because she's a woman, that's mm-hmm. why. And then males say it to each other all the time. But also, the fixed mindset plus stereotyping plus women's trust in other people's assessments of them, all of this contributes to the gender gap in math and science. This brings people directly into our world, career field, yeah. right? STEM career field. Because in the world of high tech, math and science, her declaration, another declaration, math and science need to be made more hospitable places for women, and women need all the growth mindset they can get to take their rightful places in the fields. I agree. I agree with that 100%. I think that men did a horrible job of bringing, keeping, I mean, not bringing, keeping women in the field. Because when you look back and you understand that Grace Hopper invented COBOL, mm-hmm. um, Admiral Hopper, mm-hmm. Admiral, right? She did some great things. Did, and yeah, remember back and she wasn't day, by herself. I know. And back in the day, it was pretty rare to have a woman reach that rank. Correct. You know, let alone invent something like this technology that mm-hmm. she did, right? COBOL. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know that a nanosecond is eleven point eight inches if Grace Hopper hadn't talked about the latency of data going to a satellite and back. When all her male counterparts said it must be faster, and she went, "Sir, it can't be faster here. This Let me." And she was able to figure out how to measure a nanosecond yeah. in a physical object. So she had little pieces of wire she used to hand out and say, "This is a nanosecond." And so when you talk about nanoseconds, microseconds, and grow it all out, when you talk about latency, how many of these does it take to get to there and back? Yeah, she was able to visualize that. This point in the book is so weird because I'm not. When I first read it, I was like, "Well, where is she going with this?" And then she seems to just cut the example off and not go any further. But I think like the point of where she's going with this can be illustrated by the bullet point. Like that in the summary of the chapter, she gives a summary of every chapter, right? So in the summary of the chapter, she says more than half of our society belongs to a negatively stereotyped group. Now, like I'm not going to get into like what stereotype means, but basically what she's saying is that this group has stereotyped themselves. By saying, "Hey, I, I'm a woman in tech, or I'm a whatever." You know what I mean, so self-devalued. Yeah, right. right, right so right. I'm saying because every because every I, group I, I is negatively stereotyped. She points out, like, "Hey, once you start pointing out all these groups who've been stereotyped, like they all add up. So, what what percentage of society is that that has a stereotype that they have to overcome, mindset-wise, that they have to overcome?" She says, it, "More than half." More than half of our society belongs to a negatively stereotyped group. First of all, you have all the women, and then you have all of the other groups who are not supposed to be good at something or another. Give them the gift of the growth mindset. If you understand that that this group is negatively stereotyped and has this in their, their own mind, you, you as a leader, again, we come back to being a leader in this spot. Like this is the, the under the covers of this podcast is being a leader, right? You have the opportunity to understand that these people are coming in with this specific mindset that you're that you're uncovering in one-on-ones that you're revealing one-on-ones when you're talking as an agile coach scrum master or even just a, a business leader of some sort mm-hmm. and you realize that they, they they're worried about these labels mm-hmm. right that they've grown up with for whatever reason parents teachers s- systemic whatever issues and you're trying to uncover them and help them above that to, to, to rise above that the opportunity here is to give them the gift to, to, of the growth mindset to break them out of the mindset that they were raised in which at some point, like a business person at some point, you have to say like, hey, is this is this my job? 
as a business leader, is this my job? Um, yes, my, it is. My, my challenge here on the podcast is, yes, it is your yes, job. Yes, it is. Absolutely. It I is. Will, I'll comment that what do you want to look back and say? Yeah. I could have been, I gave my all. Choose your mindset. Mm-hmm. And so I look back at certain points of my career and I do think, oh, I could have been. This could have gone this way. Yeah. But I also know that at that time, I'm pretty sure I gave my all. I'm pretty sure that I made the decisions I made at that time with the experience I had, the knowledge I had, and the understanding I had. And I may have been swinging a seven iron when I needed a driver, but I didn't know I needed a driver at that time. And so there's no doubt in my mind that in my years of experience that I haven't taken a bowler's mindset of profession and execution, trying to have a, a positive outcome with a large score, high score, good average. I want an average. I want to go in every day and I want to have a good average. I want to have a better than right. normal average right. in the way that I perform and execute it. Now, there are days I had some bad games. There are some days that I, I drug my average down and I apologize for the people who were affected on those days. Mm-hmm. But it's all about evolution. I have evolved to be who I am today based on those moments that may have not been my best and they're not not my brightest moments in life. But they didn't stop me. They, I'm, every day I'm continuing to evolve. You can make that choice every day when you get up as to what you wanna do, where you wanna be. Mm-hmm. I've used the phrase many times that when you, and I've stole it from someone else, right? Artists steal. When you find yourself best in the class, find a new class. There's so many people in teams that go, well, these people won't blah, 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 blah. And they're blaming the people that are around them. Well, did you train them? Did you teach them? Did you show them what you know? Yep. Or were you thinking job security was keeping all that knowledge to yourself? Those people tend to go, well, they won't let me. I can't lead because they won't let me. I can't do this because of this. I can't, it, Yeah, dude, lead where you are. Take, a, take responsibility for the situation you find yourself in and lead where you are. Pick up your team. If you're the best that there is and you're gonna boast about it, pick up your team and make them better. Figure out a way that you're not carrying the load yourself that you think you're carrying. The Scrum Master's dilemma right here, which is... I want to be a coach, but I'm stuck a Scrum Master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're not willing to train your supervisor. You're not willing to... Coach up. Coach up. Yeah. Coach up, but also manage up. Manage your managers, basically. And either you're not willing to do it, your organization is not conducive to doing it, or a mix of the both, or, you know what I mean? There, there are many, many reasons for this. But I see a lot of people stuck in that segment there. Yep. You know, at, 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 and the easy out is blame the easy out is the fixed mindset is the easy out here right i'm gonna blame i'm gonna do whatever unless uh, rather than scheduling one-on-ones with different people and stuff like that chapter five mindset and leadership chapter five how do we get to chapter five already according to malcolm gladwell writing in the new yorker american corporations have become obsessed with talent indeed the gurus at mckenzie and company hey here we go on mckenzie and company I love it <laughs> we're insisting that corporate success today requires the talent mindset Gladwell writes the talent mindset is a new orthodoxy of American management it creates a blueprint for the Enron culture and sowed the seeds of its demise Gladwell concludes that when people live in an environment that esteems them for their innate talent they have grave difficulty when their image is threatened they will not take the remedial course they will not stand up to investors and the public and admit they were wrong they'd sooner lie obviously a company that cannot self-correct cannot thrive I couldn't agree more. You can see the graveyards full of companies that have sure. succumbed, right? Just like Enron has, because of that. 
yeah. mindset. And he's put a label on it, right? And that's fine. Any label. And, and, that, and she opens in this chapter. Where am I? The, she opens <laughs> opens this chapter talking about Enron, and she bookends the chapter talking about Enron, Enron which yeah. don't think I didn't notice. I definitely noticed that because uh, the Enron guy, yeah, she's yeah. like, it's like in his book or whatever he wrote. I don't know why he wrote a book, and then I don't know why anyone bought that book. But she's like, they should have shredded it. He, he still says it wasn't my fault. Of course, of course. It's look, it's that whole blame mentality we've right. done. It's not me. Yeah, it's you. Right. She references a Good Great by Jim Collins, which is a future podcast episode, by the Definitely. way. Um, she says about these individuals, she's talking about leaders in the growth mindset. They're not constantly trying to prove they're better than others. For example, they don't highlight the pecking order with themselves at the top. They don't claim credit for other people's contributions, and they don't undermine others to feel powerful. Instead, they are trying constantly to improve. And they don't blame others. I think she's kind of saying that without using those words. So in that chapter, still with Enron, one of the comments that I had I'd gotten here was, my genius not only defines and validate me, it defines and validates the company. It is right. what creates value. My genius is profit. Then she goes on to say that if genius equals profit, it doesn't matter that Enron people sometimes wasted millions competing against each other. To put one over on one of your own was a sign of creativity and genius. Good grief. Yeah. And Enron. <laughs> yeah. Specifically Enron. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but I suspect they're not the only company that of course were afflicted by this, right? Well, it's a team. It's there. There are teams that are doing it too, right? There, there yeah. are teams that yeah. create their own little fiefdoms, and then they attack themselves. They, and all of a sudden, you have. Why do we have conflict on our team? Why we work for the same company? Should be trying to accomplish the same mission, but so for some reason we have conflict. Someone was offended. Some someone didn't like the statement that was made. You know, three people ganged up on somebody. Whatever, right? You just. And all of a sudden, it's Survivor. We're going to throw him off the island. She's talking about Jeff Skilling, Enron. Skilling not only thought he was smarter than everyone else, but, like Iacocca, also thought he was luckier. According to two insiders, he thought he could beat the odds. Why should he feel vulnerable? There was never anything wrong. Skilling still does not admit there was anything wrong. The world simply didn't get it. Talking about what you were just talking about. Of, you know, As soon as he books million dollars in profits on a business before it was generated, before any actual profit was generated, they were booking it off in their books. Yeah, but we still teach that today in the concept of earned value, right? How many projects have earned Yikes. value but yet hasn't been released? How was value earned if it's... Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You, I, you, do, you, I do, yeah, so I do. I know right the formula. Yeah. Of no, I, I jokingly call that intent to earn value because right. you really haven't proven it yet. Right. You intend to. It's just an expression of future intent is all it is, right? Yep. I agree, absolutely. So you know, Shark Tank, we haven't released the product yet, but I'd like to give you 5% for a $2 million investment. <laughs> so in this chapter, she starts talking about brutal bosses. Mm. Bosses had a few in, bosses in the fixed mindset. I think I think all of this probably had quite, quite a few like bosses in the in the in the fixed mindset. So none of our fixed mindset leaders cared much about the little guy, and many were outright contemptuous of those beneath them on the corporate ladder. This kind of abuse represents the boss's desire to enhance their own feelings of power, competence, and value. This is the funny thing is when I say this out loud, people are going to be like, "Well, why would you ever stick around?" You don't really realize it when you're in this situation. This is one of those things where. When you're in the situation, you're real close to the problem. You don't see it for what it is. You have to step away and back away and see it from far away or see it from outside, step outside to, to see the real problem. These bosses have the power to make people worse off. And when they do, they feel better about themselves. Often the victims are the most competent people because these are the ones who pose the greatest threat to a fixed mindset boss. The brutal boss's situation is a pattern that I've seen more than once and some could probably say I was brutal at one point in my career as well. Being driven is is a value that I have that I think is important and sometimes people who aren't as driven see it differently. But brutal bosses, you, you tend to find yourself on this treadmill 
that you can't seem to get off of that's going faster than you can keep up with and so this is the job you took this is the boss you have getting off that treadmill requires you to plant your feet and be thrown viciously off the backside of it to realize that's the only way off and it may cost your family stability it may cost you some mental health and it may put you in a situation where you become fixed-minded because now you're just trying to figure out how to survive. So when your your survival instincts kick in, your rational behaviors are have gone to hell. And so you now start exuding behaviors, personality traits that don't make you likable. Yeah. And as you're interviewing, it shows up. It's worth pointing out that being driven does not equal, exclamation mark, equal sign, being brutal as Correct. the boss. Correct. Right? They're two different things. Yeah. Sometimes people who are driven are brutal. Sometimes people who aren't driven are brutal right. for their own reasons. So I don't think those two are synonymous by any stretch. They're, they're examples of great leaders that are driven, mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are not brutal, right? The one we've talked about on the podcast is an anecdote where I talk about how I got off a flight one time in London and six o'clock in the it's an overnight. So six o'clock in the morning waiting for my bag at the my baggage belt and an old man shows up next to me and asks me, how was your flight? Like, oh, that's hmm. fine. And that Mr. Branson. old man was Sir, Sir Branson. Branson. He's done this several times apparently and I didn't know that at the time. I didn't even know it was him at the yeah. time. The point is that there are leaders like that that really care about the business that they don't think it's beneath them to do these sorts of things mm-hmm. to really find out. When you have leaders who truly walk up to a, a team member and say, hey, can you show me what you do? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're, they're so afraid to show what they do. They're yeah. so afraid to be open. Yeah. What's going to happen with that? Where's this go? They're, they're uncomfortable by it. Yeah. So you, as a leader, you have to do that enough that it doesn't scare everybody. Yeah. Yeah. But the first time you walk up to somebody and say, show me what you do. Yeah, go. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, yeah. Well, there, it's hard mean, to get them to open up. There, if we're going to make a statement in the podcast, like there's a statement right there. Like if you walk up to someone and they're afraid to show you what they do, organizationally, your culture, your culture, mm-hmm. I guess, there's a fixed mindset culture. Yeah. Well, you've, all, I've, you've heard me say culture is a lagging indicator, yeah. right? Some quotes from the book 124. The minute a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about rather than reality being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity or worse. <laughs> she, she goes on to say leadership had publicly ridiculed managers for mistakes to the point where they inhibited those managers from innovating. And then she says it's hard for courage and innovation to survive a company-wide fixed mindset which is funny because a couple pages later she starts talking about ceos who who do exactly what you were saying they they want to go around the company they want to find out what's happening they want to Mm -hmm. find out what the processes are what the problems are and she gives some steps on uh, 128, page 127, 28. So you skipped 126. So uh, well, so Jack, Jack Welch never stopped visiting the factories and hearing the exactly, workers. Exactly, yeah. So an emphasis on teamwork. It's basically the opposite of Iacocca's I'm the hero and Dunlap's I'm the superstar, which was fun. I, I completely skipped the Dunlap example where he's like, I'm the Michael Jordan of business. And then he had to run a business and he ran it into the ground. Chainsaw yeah. Al. Her premise here on these pages. The growth mindset manager is a guide, not a judge. And then she walks through some examples of how these managers are being guides and not judges. Shutting down elitism in the company, getting rid of brutal bosses, rewarding teamwork rather than individual genius, being devoted to growth. Like we talk about that on the podcast probably too much about, about if your reward system focuses on individual performance rather than team performance, like you probably are creating a problem for I feel yourself. Like a series of Jeff Foxworthy quotes are in order now. <laughs> if your reward system That's rewards right, those yeah. things, then yeah, yeah, probably right. I mean, very few organizations reward at the team level is what I've seen. They really do token 
rewards at that point, right? You know, everybody gets a voucher or Amazon card or Starbucks card. That, that's a token gesture. That's really not rewarding the team. Let them figure out what their rewards should be. How about that? The problem, one of the challenges with rewards is your reward never equals what the person thinks they deserve. Yes, absolutely, right? never. And there are some organizations that have limitations, especially in the government, have limitations on how big or you can't gift something more yeah. than this, yeah. right? So it's hard to find an appropriate token mm -hmm to make the person sure. value what you gave them at times. Sure. Agreed, but rewards don't always have to be material things. Of course, so uh, right. you can think about that in those situations, right? Maybe give them a four day week for well, a little while, whatever. And at Xerox, I was just scanning, one of the things I underlined was, and at Xerox gave them, uh, everyone got their birthday off, right? Yeah, right, yeah. So yeah, there are certain things you yeah. put in place, but then you go back, okay, well, everybody got their birthday off. That's not a reward, everybody got it, right? There's this mindset that if everybody gets it, then no, then the it's name not comes an entitlement. Right. Yeah. We touched on this one, on the Taylorism podcast, mm -hmm. because in Taylor's model, his bonus was they're basically on the spot bonuses because mm -hmm. people were basically paid every day, probably mm -hmm. giving cash, or whatever. Yeah. But um, in his model, when you worked above and beyond the quotas that he had outlined in the system, you were basically paid a percentage above. I mean, 50, 60 percentage above, or whatever. I can't remember what the percentage it was like. You got paid like sixty percent above for three times the labor or something. I can't remember what the percentage was. We we joked about it, it when we did the podcast. Equitable, but yeah, yeah, it wasn't completely fair. Yeah, but also he was like, "Hey, it's better than like what you're making before right. by a factor." I don't remember what it was. I, I I should probably go back and figure out what it was. But we did touch on that one. So like he he it was a reward, good cast. I did watch it. His reward was basically a daily, mm -hmm. you know, and there probably was you know uh, different spot bonuses on, on, at different time periods. Maybe I don't know. I, if, if I were if I were if I were working, and I was getting rewards daily for going above and beyond, I don't know that 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 sounds pretty good to me. The whole thing with Taylor, right, was it's been applied to so many cases in agile space and whatnot. Taylor is wrong. It works when you're doing widgets, and you go in and out of cycles all the time. Right. We can't measure knowledge work the same. Right. It's everyone's written about it. It's been said many times. I don't. I've yet to figure out what I think is equitable for knowledge work. Right. Yeah. Because. I could, I could, if you gave me more time to think, I'd probably solve more problems. I'm too busy context switching from this thing to that thing to really focus on true innovation, true modernization, true change. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone suffers with that. And I don't think Taylorism reward systems necessarily apply. No, they don't. We're doing, like you said, right. complex work now, right? It's not just widgets. But on rewards, right? Profit sharing, right? Is profit, is profit sharing a, a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing overall, right? If the company can figure yeah. out a way to give away enough profit to the team members, especially when you're dealing with consultancy, mm -hmm. they're client billing, right? If you have a team member who only bills 50% and you have another team member who bills 120%, is that team member making a sacrifice? Are they are the results there, yeah. right? Not just punching a time clock, but it, are the results there? And if they are and they're making your company more money and you have a profit sharing program, then what is equitable is somehow driven by how much money was yeah. earned yeah. by the company based on your direct results. And so that's where profit sharing is, I think, is a good reward and somewhat equitable. The challenge becomes if they're punching the clock, getting credit for something that wasn't actually done, right? You have to figure all that out. But in its most general flat, without all the caveats, I think profit sharing is a good way of rewarding knowledge work. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I've seen it executed well in a couple of places that are really, really small. Mm -hmm. like flat hierarchy, which entrepreneurial kind of right. startups. Yeah. And they did a fantastic job of that, right? right. I mean, and everybody could see that. Every All employees could see what this one person has done mm -hmm. over a quarter, whatever period of time it was. Yeah. And they could see the reward they got. And it was deliberately done that way, not only for full disclosure visibility, but 
kind of act as a you know as a motivator. Really. It, is, it so is competitive at that point when you can see. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right, and you That's can choose. Competition. You can choose if you want to play the game or not. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's rare though these days, especially right. in larger companies. It's also harder, I'll admit, to pull it off. Not impossible by any stretch. I think organizations like SHRM really need to think about this these days, right? I don't think there's enough focus on those sorts of reward systems. We reference HR people, and I'm, <laughs> I'm hard. Yeah. Everyone that listens to the podcast, you know, the disciplinarian is going to come yell at you. And I was in an interview with an HR person this week with as a as a pure interview. We were interviewing HR people. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I I didn't hold back and said, yeah, HR normally works for legal. So yeah, I'm pretty hard on HR as well. Yeah. 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 Why don't team members go to their HR and explain their problems because it's not a safe place. It's you, you work for legal. You're generally speaking, right? That's yes. the, that's the yes, perception. Indeed. And as soon as you've had a bad experience in another company, back to my below the line, above the line, I carry that with me. So, uh, like, you, just, you just define the whole podcast episode, the, the podcast episode and title HR colon. It's not a safe space. <laughs> that, that's the whole episode right there. Listen, you, you could be doing a lot for your career field, and you could be like a, absorbing a lot of these Scrum Master Agile Coach skills and talking about organizational design and development and breaking. You could have read team topologies. You could understand how to break the team into small groups. You could understand why you don't want to have a, a quote team of 300 people or whatever. Like a, Break your organization mm-hmm. into teams and have, have single working backwards. Have, have single-threaded leaders be in charge of certain initiatives in, the, in those teams and build teams around motivated individuals they could be doing a lot to do all this stuff i also want to say though i've had some really great hr people too right oh it's the problem is you're the only one they no i've 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 had i've had a few that that were awesome in my career so so i don't want to lump them all together but i've had i've had a couple bad experiences where it's it it does affect that that openness of course i agree I've only had one, and I should mention her so I could tag her in the episode. And uh, she left when the company got bought. She was like, "Oh, the company got bought. I got, I, I, I left the pot on the stove. I, I've got to leave." <laughs> That's awesome. Good for her. <laughs> Bring us back to the topic. This is uh, page one thirty-three. Those with a fixed mindset believe that people have a certain fixed amount of management ability, and they cannot do much to change it. In contrast, those with a growth mindset believed people can always substantially change their basic skills for managing other people. So one group thought that you have it or you don't. The other thought your skills could grow with experience. I agree with the latter. Exactly. I agree. There, there are there are definitely those brutal bosses that only believe you have what you have on the day you showed up. Right. And yeah. then the day you showed up, that's all they ever see you as. Right. Right. Eight years later, you're still there, still trotting away, trying to get that. Why am I not getting promoted? because that's all they ever see you as is yeah. the day you ever started. Right. That's their failure though. Yep. It really is. Or you had a good experience and you come back 10 years later and they still see you as what you were, what you were, what you were yeah, not yeah, what you yeah. grew into. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. One more topic on that is is when you actually help develop somebody and they're now a leader and other, they're now your boss yeah. <laughs> and then you think you're helping them and they're intimidated because they're still, they think you're trying to take, no, I'm not trying to, thought I was helping you. And then, so now you have conflict due to that. It's a, it's a weird dynamic. Been there, done it. Wish it was done better. But yeah, it's, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. Once you, once you've exported that talent, don't go back to it is, and I'm speaking from experience there. Here you go. It's uh, page 136. It says, we talked about all the well-meaning parents who tried to boost their children's self-esteem by telling them how smart and talented they are. These children (laughs) of praise have now entered the workforce. We now have a workforce full of people who need constant reassurance and can't take criticism. 
we've shown in our research that with the right kinds of feedback, even adults can be motivated to choose challenging tasks and confront their mistakes. I'm cutting all over the place here, but if businesses don't play a role in developing a more mature and growth-minded workforce, where will the leaders of the future come from? From the select few that are still being raised by old school mindsets. Yeah, or the cynic in me says, from those that come here from other nations where people aren't grown up this way. I mean, look, <laughs> you look at today's landscape, and this is big, large corporations, Google, yep. Microsoft, yep. IBM, I can go on and on and on. The leadership is not native American-born no, individuals, right? They are transplants that have come here uh, from nations where they aren't mollycoddled uh, out, of the, out, out, out of the pram, as we call it. I'm going to sit back and cross my arms on this one. Like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I got a hot take on this one. Go ahead. It's the, the people that are out there like f- forcing themselves to learn and uh, consuming new material and trying to understand why their defects are their defects and trying to overcome them. Like th- they will become these people. And then the majority of the workforce, who is what she's talking about, will be stuck in place. But I, I struggle with the, the idea that leadership in five, 10 years is going to be what it always has been. The growth of the amount of money you can make by being a, a content creator on some of these social networks, while those may be great potential leaders, not on, <laughs> well, not on this one, but while they may be great potential leaders, they're going to be self-employed, self-managed, self-governed, oh, self yeah. and, oh, and so yeah. we're losing out of a, a large collection of highly motivated, highly skilled, oh, highly yeah. knowledgeable people to self-employment, self-promotion, and they're not getting into the corporate environment. So I wonder, back to where's innovation coming from in our organizations, we have a whole workforce that are very talented that we're never going to see them in a, in a corporate environment. It's gonna leave a big void, a big Correct. vacuum, right? Where's the batch of next leaders coming from? And then what does the corporate corporate model look like five years from now, and how are we, developing those leaders to lead to that new model that is not defined or understood. If you had told me two years ago that we would all be working remote as we are today, I I wouldn't have understood it. I wouldn't have necessarily believed it. No way. It can't function with that many large organizations, right? Small organizations, I got it. Yeah, I've run remote teams. I've been there before. Sure. But what it is today is not what we expected. And so I don't think the next three, five years can even be drawn on a board yet. I think you're right. Uh, one of the things, to answer your question, I don't have an answer, but just to kind of tease that out a bit more. Where are the next gen leaders coming from, right? Where have they come from, you know, in history, right? Mm-hmm. It's typically been the, these school type people, people that work for some of the consultancies out there. But those, the, the training that they're going through, I feel at least, that it hasn't really changed radically. Right, it's still the, the same. The training hasn't changed, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're coming out with these elite, newly minted MBAs, <laughs> and their th- thought process taught by professors who are mired in their thought processes right. of yesteryear. They come out in an environment that is completely different, right? Well, that's what computer comp sci used to be the same way, right? Yeah. I went to com- I got my comp sci degree, or here, and I'm gonna teach you how to program, right? Your first job was they did they didn't prepare you for the outside was. Right. No, that's right. So I, so I'm actually fearful about. Where are the leaders going to come right. from? I'm not fearful that we won't get leaders. I'm fearful about where they're going to come from. I'm afraid, really, as somebody who lives in this country, um, these leaders aren't going to be native, you know, homegrown leaders in that sense. They're going to be people that come here from other countries that get an education, but really their, their, their real education and their upbringing has been in a different way than it is for us here in this country where people are told, you're doing great, you're the best there is, right? And then they go out into the world and they don't hear that. They need to hear it all right. the time. These folks that come in, first of all, there's extreme competition for them to come here. Yeah. So yep. the people that you do see over here, 
absolutely are the best of the yeah, best, right? right. right? They uh, earned it. Then they have definitely earned it, and there's two ways they can go. They can stay here, and they can become leaders of these organizations that we, we know today, or they go back to where they came from, or they go back to some other nations, right. and now they are direct competitors to the organizations yeah. here. That's uh, what I see let happening. Me, let, me, let, me, let me pause you guys right here. This is when organizations put the premium on natural talent, then everyone wants to be the superstar. Everyone wants to shine brighter than the others, and people may be more likely to cheat or cut corners to do so. Teamwork can take a nosedive. And it says, supervisors in growth mindset companies, on the other hand, rated their employees as more collaborative and more committed to learning and growing, and as more innovative, and as having far greater management potential. These are all things that make a company more agile and more likely to stay in the vanguard, which is kind of like in line with what you're, what you're saying now. You know, who, so who who are the leaders? That like, wh- where are they coming from? Uh, it's like I I don't know if she can answer that in this book. I don't know if we can answer that in the podcast. Quite honestly, yeah, I think crossing the chasm kind of falls into here as well, right? So when we talk about leaders, we talk about growth, growth mm-hmm. mindset. There's a there's a certain portion that is going to be your early adopters and your trendsetters, and mm-hmm. they're going to get going. And then you have your laggards at the end who are fixed-minded, and they're not going to do it until it's safe and guaranteed to be successful. So from a leadership growth standpoint, it it's hard to say that a, I heard what, when you read growth-minded company, a company takes on the mindset of the people that work there and, and provide. It's the culture. So how do you industrialize the creation of a growth-minded company without taking into effect the experiences of the people? Mm-hmm. It's hard to hire with technical experience and cultural background and growth behaviors. We're going to struggle with that because right now there's this belief that the way I work, the way I show up, the way I do my job is all about being comfortable in my home office. And I'm not saying you can't have a growth mindset in your home office. What I'm trying to say is your reach of influence by modeling a behavior that other people can sit and watch and see is harder. Even when you're on camera in a meeting with 15 other people, you're just a little square over in the corner. You may or may not make it on the screen unless you want the last people to speak. Right. So you aren't having the influence that you're going to have is if you were in the room sharing your ideas and thoughts to somebody who's yeah. just watching. Absolutely right. I agree with that. If you're just one of the Brady Bunch children on the screen, right. yeah, it's really hard. I call them people. Hollywood squares. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It is difficult. It really is. I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, we are where we are. We don't know where how COVID is going to take a turn, right? But maybe in a year's time, this is the optimist in me, maybe in a year's time, we'll see more people just say, do what's needed, right? Bring people in as needed. People will themselves say, well, we should maybe get together. And it doesn't have to be for a specific reason. It's just because, you know, we want to develop relationships with one another, just establish rapport, right? But a growth, a growth-minded company has to build in teachable moments. Yes, absolutely. They have to, we used to have lunch and learns mm-hmm. where we'd do brown bag on the office and we'd share ideas. Right now there's meetings all hours of the day. There's no defined lunch time. And you're, at least in my world, and you're just, you're just at it. You're just working, right? You're, sure. you're, you're, you're in meetings, you're pumping out work, you're putting time, block, time blocks on your calendar. You're just trying to figure out how do you keep delivering and executing in a way that is valuable to company shareholders and so we need to figure out from a growth minded standpoint how do we appeal to the needs of our team members who are not getting 
the opportunity to grow any other way. It's a, it's a complex problem, I think. Oh, yeah, uh, you definitely. Know, I, I think as leaders, one of the things that you could do is just let the team decide the, the way they want to work, have their protected hours, etc. You know, they can come up with agreements that suit them as a team. Like, for example, one of my teams has an agreement that says no meetings after 4 p.m. Eastern. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. We have some people that are on the West Coast and that's in the middle of their day. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. They can use that time however they want. If that's what they see value in, then I'm all for it. I have until team, they change it. Yeah, I have team members who work with multiple clients during the day. So when you talk about it's team hard. agreements, there are multiple teams. Yeah. They're context switching. Yeah. And so it it's one of my responsibilities to figure this out as well. Right. So I'm I'm I keep coming back to here because I'm I'm noodling on it on a daily basis. How do I right. in a small business with some very wonderful people that I want to invest in? And I want to help them be better, but we're in different parts of the world. I can't go just grab lunch and, right. you know, it, it, it's, it has to be deliberate and it has to take away from client billing. It has to take away, it's, it, you have to invest in that and they have to want it as well. That's right. Yeah. I just, I'd say if that's something that they come up with, if anything that they come up with that you can support, that's oh, the yeah. way probably to go, right? Because uh, they came up with it firstly. And then treat that with that experimentation mindset. If it doesn't work, change it up. Right. So, and that goes back to growth. I, actually, it was one of my thoughts before I got here was growth and fixed mindset is there's certain things I have a fixed mindset because I'm just not interested. I don't want to. When you look at Marcus Buckingham, go put your strengths to work, right? There's just certain things that I'm not good at that. I don't want to be good at it. And I'm fixed minded that I'm not going to do it. But there's other things that just interest the hell out of me. And I spend a lot of time. I can get in flow and not even realize I'm in flow yeah. on those things. Yeah. And so it's really hard when you are employed with an organization that you have a job to do you have to you're doing that thing and there's certain aspects of it that you can never get in flow on right. and you just have to accept it yeah. and realize that ah, that's a weakness I, yeah. and, and then you're going to be judged on it you're not good at that you need to do better at that well that that's that's okay as long as you're not falling into what she points out in, in one of the later i think in the last chapter in the book page 224 where she's she's talking about aaron beck a psychiatrist in the 1960s developing cognitive therapy saying that your belief in things was actually causing the problem. So in cog cognitive therapy, she says, Dr. Beck thinks I'm incompetent or this therapy will never work. I'll never feel better. These kinds of beliefs cause their negative feelings, not only in the therapy session, but in their life as well. The beliefs cause negative feelings. The oh, person's yes. belief caused yep. the negative feelings. So she says, people with a growth mindset are constantly monitoring what's going on, but their internal monologue is not about judging themselves and others in this way. What can I learn from this? How can I improve? How can I help my partner be better? Right. As opposed to constantly, you know, I'm the worst. I, I suck at this or whatever. So when I, when I listen to your example, I'm, I'm 100% on board with your example, by the way, which is like, I, I know I'm not good at these things. I'm not really willing to exert effort towards because I got, I got so much other stuff going on. I'm just not willing to exert more effort into that. However, it's not a, I'm not willing to exert effort and I'm suck and I'm, I, I suck and I'm the most terrible right. person in the world. It's, I know that I have a finite amount of effort to distribute d during the day, right? Night, whatever. <laughs> Depends. And I'm just not willing to spend more time on that. Right. So it's, it's a conscious uh, effort that I'm expending, but at least I'm self-aware of it. Right. Yeah. There's a Marcus Buckingham has a uh, video series. I think I think it's called Trumpet Player Wanted, yeah. and and the whole time the kid's playing the trumpet, he's looking over at the drums. He wants to play the drums. Yeah. And when the whole idea is, I'm trying to get over there, but I got to fill this spot on the band first. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. so, uh, you know, all too often we are looking at our job, someone else's job. I wish I was doing that. I want to do that. That thing energizes me. 
but our fixed minded mindset keeps us from creating a path, mm-hmm. developing a skill set that allows us to get in that direction. And just be, I'm not trying to say in, envy or covet someone else's role. What I am trying to say though is if that's what you think you want, you need to make a path to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just keep sitting where you are. And that's the phrase lead where you are. That's a Bill Hybels phrase, lead where you are. Figure out what you can do to get to there. Lead yourself to get there. Go get it if that's what you want. Don't just keep sitting there waiting for someone to give it to you. I'm not paid to do that. Well, you will never be paid to do that if you don't do it before you're paid. That's right, exactly. Start (laughs) to develop those those arms of the T, right? The T shape. Yeah, I agree with you. But that that onus is on you, to your point. No one's gonna come to you and say, hey, I think you might be good at this. It's no, not my job. Not happen, it's right? not my job. Well, yeah. never will That's be. The individual hindering themselves. <laughs> like, not my job. Oh, no. Okay, stay where you are. People get paid to do podcasting? Oh, I didn't. That oh, no. Not here. No, no. no. <laughs> oh, I wish someone, I wish I knew. Well, that is that is Carol Dweck's mindset. We probably could have broken it up by chapter and done a, a, a podcast Seriously. on every single chapter. Sure. I think everybody should read this book. I think if you're an agile leader, Product manager, scrum, scrum master, coach, definitely. We, we you can, drop, you can drop agile. Jack. You can drop agile from that if you are a leader. If you're, yeah. a, leader, if, if, if you're a person in the business space, yeah. if you want to do anything in your life other than exist, read this book. That's my pitch. If you enjoy the podcast, you should read this book. And let us know down in the comments below if you'd like us to explore this further. We might be able to do another you know, follow up part two or two and three, we whatever. Even, and don't forget to subscribe, and you might actually get the notification oh, yeah, that uh, there's that's new right. episodes. Good point. Yeah. Don't unless you're Pat, smash Patrick. that subscribe yeah. button. Yeah. <laughs> unless you're Pat, unless you're Patrick, and then you won't. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't get it. I don't know why. So, sorry, Patrick. Here's your notification. 